here's what we're going to do. We are going to continue a series that we started several months ago in the book of Revelation. So if you guys have a Bible, open up to the book of Revelation. Uh, We started this series going through the book of Revelation. Uh, Typically what we do on Sunday mornings is we take books of the Bible. We just study through them, let God speak to us. Currently right now we started this series in the book of Revelation. And we're kind of in this little section here. Uh, The book's kind of divided up into three basic sections. The first section has to do with chapter one, which is sort of this unveiling of Jesus in this glorified state. Chapter two and three has to do with this little kind of, uh, it's kind of like a didactic or teaching. Jesus is actually teaching and giving these letters to the churches that are in this particular region. There's in fact seven of them. So we call this section the seven letters to the seven churches. And the next week we're going to be getting into chapter four. And uh, actually we're going to go to heaven next week. So it should be a pretty good journey next week. Uh, And uh, we're going to be looking at what heaven's like and what Jesus is like there on the throne and what surrounds his throne. So it should be a really good time. So I'd encourage you to uh, maybe even begin to read now and ask God to speak to your heart. So as you guys come on Sunday morning, this isn't just, you know, me speaking or talking to you guys. This is you guys coming with your heart already kind of prepared and ready, and you already have a pretty good understanding as to what God's doing within the text. And as we study it and teach through it and understand it, our hearts uh, will actually be prepared to kind of give the proper appropriate response that God wants us to give, which is love, worship. So today we're going to wrap up this little section of chapters two and three, taking a look at these seven letters to the seven churches. And uh, the last time that we were in this section, just before uh, winter break, we took a look at the last letter that we looked at, which was the church in Philadelphia. This is a great church. A lot of great things were happening there. Uh, Jesus commends this church. He's got a lot of great things to say about this church. Uh, The word Philadelphia literally literally means uh, brotherly love. And uh, really, it was a great church. And I honestly... honestly, uh, Really wish we could have even ended right there with that church, and that's it. Uh, but to be really frank with you, the church that we're going to be looking at today is a pretty bad church. It's a church in a city called Laodicea. There's really nothing good at all about this church. Jesus has nothing good to say about this church. Uh, the church is not really, it's not healthy. Uh, they're not doing good. Uh, Jesus just simply rebukes them. And to be frank, I wish I could have just ended with Philadelphia because I don't really have the luxury to just kind of make things up as I go. Uh, As we're looking at this, the story kind of ends with this church in Laodicea. So we, too, have got to end with the story of this church in Laodicea. So with that, I'm going to pray. And then we're going to get to work at this. And I'm going to read through the little letter. And then we'll get to work kind of breaking it down bit by bit as we try to understand Uh, why Jesus is frustrated with this church in the city called Laodicea. Let's pray. Jesus, right now we ask you that you would help us to understand your heart, to help us understand why uh, you are frustrated with this church, why you use strong language uh, like spitting them out of your mouth, why they nauseate you. And God, I pray that you'd help us to understand that even in the context of the letter of this church, there's still a heart of love that you have for them. Um, So God, I I pray that you would help us to understand that you are serious with regard to the type of message we as your church send out to the world. That God, you care about your glory. You care about how we convey you. You care about how we reflect you. And uh, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to understand how we can do that as best as we can. Uh, to your glory, for your glory, for your good name. And uh, we ask all these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Revelation chapter 3, we're going to take a look at verse 14. I'm going to read down to the end, and then we're going to kind of break it down bit by bit. Here's what it says. And to the angel in the church of Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. I would that you were either hot or cold. Uh, So because you are lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I'm rich, I prosper, I have need of nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold, refined by the fire, so that you may be rich. And white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And solve to anoint your eyes. So that you might see those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. 
So be zealous and repent. Therefore, or behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and I will dine with him and he with me. And the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I have also conquered and I've sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to these churches. So obviously in the tone, we begin to immediately get the impression Jesus is not really stoked with these group of people. Um, we're going to look at why. But before we kind of jump into that, I want to give you guys a little bit of a background in terms of historical background of the city. I think it's important because it plays into the larger picture of the city. This is one of the reasons why I think it's important for us as we study our Bibles to try to understand the culture or the context to which it was being written. I'll give you an example. If we just simply read it, we try to oftentimes superimpose our understanding upon what's happening, and then we oftentimes draw false conclusions. We'll look at one of the false conclusions in a second that I think we oftentimes draw from this particular text itself. Uh, let me give you a little bit of background with regard to the church in the city of Laodicea. Here's a map that most of you guys are familiar with. Some of you are probably tired of. Uh, this is the last week you'll see it, so cheer up. Um, you'll see that arrow. It's pointing to the city called Laodicea. This is, again, part of seven churches that are in a region. It's kind of like an oval, long, oblong type shape. But this has kind of formed an ancient um, postal route that... Uh, People would have delivered the mail to deliver types of, you know, objects, packages, whatnot, on kind of this uh, Roman-made road that went to all of these churches. After they got these letters, they would have read them, then they would have repackaged them or written them, and then delivered them to another uh, city, another church, another city somewhere else. Uh, so that was a common practice. So you kind of get an idea as to where that's at. The next picture that you're going to see up here uh, really kind of is, is, a, is a common picture some of you might be familiar with. We've kind of shown similar pictures to this one before, but what this is, is you see kind of the street lined with these columns. Um, most ancient Roman cities adopted very similar type of um, architecture throughout the city. Uh, that's why most uh, amphitheaters, uh, most hippodromes, most theaters, most uh, agoras, which is what this is, it's a marketplace, were all very similar because it was all sort of in the same type of uh, Greco-Roman type architecture. So this would have been a main thoroughfare when people were to walk in. Sometimes some of these ancient cities, depending upon how big the city were, uh, you can imagine a road like this that would go for like a mile. On either side, you would have uh, shops and businesses. And if you can imagine, way back in the day, um, these are just ruins now. But just imagine these huge, massive uh, structures and storefronts. And up front, they would have these, you know, big old banners and all sorts of colors. And people would be roasting, you know, tri-tip out front. And they'd be, you know, burning spices and incense. And it was full of uh, rich colors and smells and scents and music and sounds and imagery and all these other types of things going on with this, in this ancient city. And uh, the early Christians that would have actually gone to the city of Laodicea, they obviously would have spent a lot of time down here. This was sort of the main marketplace. This is kind of like their farmer's market, except they would do this all the time. And uh, one of the things that you'll notice about Laodicea is it was a very large city. Uh, archaeologists have discovered that there were two uh, theaters within the city, which tells us that had a large emphasis upon the arts. Uh, theaters was not just simply their form of entertainment, but it was also their form of uh, conveying worldview. In other words, if you go to some of these ancient theaters, they would have these huge statues of their gods carved out into the pillars surrounding the particular theater. It was because it was basically, so you walk into one city, let's say, for example, this one, uh, they worshiped Zeus. This was sort of the patron god of the city. So Zeus was sort of imprinted onto their coinage, but he was also kind of uh, depicted in kind of uh, iconic form uh, within their theaters, which in their theater uh, shows, they would actually have, you know, portrayals of Zeus coming in, and this is where they would convey their worldview, and they would get entertainment value, and so on and so forth. So we know that it had a huge impact uh, with regard to the arts. Uh, another thing we noticed about the city, that it was kind of a commercial center. Uh, it was widely known for its banking. Um, interestingly enough, uh, the city of Laodicea was actually one of three cities that were very close in proximity to each other. Uh, one of the cities that was very close, we're talking within just kind of walking distance, was another city called uh, Heriopolis. Uh, another one was called Colossae. In fact, in your New Testaments, you might come across a little passage or a little a book in the Bible called Colossians. Uh, that was a city that was 
right next to Laodicea. In fact, in the book of Colossians, uh, Paul, when he's writing this, he basically says, look, when you guys are done reading this, pack it back up and ship it off to the brothers and sisters down in Laodicea and let them read what I wrote to you guys too. So you can imagine, this is kind of a little bit of a snapshot into the early church life. One of the things with regard to Hierapolis was Hierapolis was kind of situated up on some cliffs, big, massive, white, uh, mineral-rich cliffs. Uh, It was known back in that day for its hot springs. Uh, I wish I had a picture to show you guys, some of the pictures that I'd seen. Really, it looked like an amazing place. Big, massive pools. And uh, you can imagine the ancients of that day, they would sort of form these pipes that would go down into the city of Hierapolis, and they would have these, you know, especially if you were really rich, you would have hot and cold running water. Imagine that. You'd have this big mineral bath right in your backyard. Um, But then they had these big public pools. They would have these uh, gymnasiums uh, where you would go in. These public bathhouses, that's what they they were. But the public bathhouses in Hierapolis were hot water and mineral baths. So you'd imagine... It was kind of a destination spot. People from all around the world would travel to Hierapolis to go hang out in the hot mineral baths there, all right, right next to the city of Laodicea. Uh, another city right next to Laodicea that was kind of part of this threesome type city was the city called Colossae. Uh, right behind Colossae, because Col- Colossae sort of was situated uh, in this mountain range, was this big, massive mountain range that pretty much always year-round had fresh snow. So... Uh, snow obviously melts and forms these unbelievably nice, uh, you know, refreshing, cold mineral springs coming down from the mountain, and they sort of carved their way into the city of Colossae. So Colossae had great, uh, nice, thirst-quenching, cold, mountain-chilled snow water melted going through their city. Hierapolis had this amazing, nice, hot mineral bath water, and Laodicea was sort of situated in between these two cities. And because people would go to Hierapolis and hang out in the baths and relax, and other people would go to Colossae and snowboard, uh, they would, before they went and checked into their chalet in Colossae or go hang out in the bath in Hierapolis, they would go to their ATM, and their ATM was in Laodicea. It just so happened to be the place that all the public banking kind of took place. As a result of that, uh, Laodicea became very wealthy, very well known as a banking center of the ancient world. In fact, they were so well off, so rich, and by the time of the late first century, or late second century, they had so much money, kind of amassed so much strength and wealth, like first century I should say, uh, there was an earthquake in around 66 AD that absolutely destroyed not only the city of Laodicea, Colossae, and Hierapolis, um, and when Rome came in, they said, hey, we'll help repair your guys' buildings and your houses and your cities. Uh, Colossae took them up on their financial aid, as well as Hierapolis. But Laodicea, interestingly enough, denied all financial help and says, we got enough money. We'll do it ourselves. We don't need the help of Rome. We're happy. We're rich. We got lots of money. We'll take care of it ourselves. Thank you. That will play into the text. That mentality, that idea of, we're wealthy, we're rich, we'll take care of ourselves, thank you, plays into the message that Jesus says. All right, a couple other things. Um, you'll see kind of like this little uh, pipe up there. You're like, that looks like a pipe. It's because it is. Um, and it's a picture of an ancient pipe uh, in the city of Laodicea, and there were hundreds, hundreds of these pipes all throughout the city. In fact, most of them went underground, and they had to kind of get to them by excavating them. But all the water in Laodicea, if you were to, you know, kind of go and plant a big, massive city back in the ancient world, uh, one of the most important things that you need was water. It was the most important thing. Most of you, you know, we live in a culture where we turn on a faucet, we think water comes out of our pipes. And it does, but it comes from someplace else. But we get used to the fact that we just always have it. Ancient cultures and civilizations didn't have that luxury. They realized they either had to, A, find a nice well that was suitable or some sort of a spring, or they had to build these massive aqueduct-type systems in order to bring water in in order to build a a civilization around that. Uh, Laodicea was just that type of city. They didn't have any natural springs, so all of their water had to come elsewhere. So this plays in the story too, because we're told, according to ancient tradition, that the water in Laodicea actually was shipped in 
up, upwards of six miles away from some of the other regions, some from Hierapolis and some from other areas, but as far as six miles away. And by, t- by the time the water got into the city, because of its high mineral content, and because of oftentimes either coming from uh, Hierapolis, it was this hot mineral spring, by the time it got to Colossae, or I'm sorry, by the time it got to Laodicea, it was this tepid, lukewarm, nasty, mineral-tasting, calcified type of water, all right? In fact, this picture, you're like, why is the hole so small? Well, it didn't start out that small. It was pretty big, actually, but it got calcified. And all of these mineral deposits, they found massive cloggage, you know, in a lot of these pipes because the constant mineral deposits in these, it was just nasty water. This guy by the name of Strabos, uh, early first century writer, he actually died somewhere around the time when Jesus was a uh, junior higher, and uh, he was kind of an early historian. He wasn't a Christian, but he kind of kept track of a lot of stuff that was going on. And uh, he talks about how the water in Laodicea was just horrible. Nobody liked drinking it. It was tepid. It was nasty. It was full of minerals. Nobody liked it. Other than that, it was kind of a cool city. It's kind of what he says. So the other thing that we notice about Laodicea, that it also sold a really uh, unique type of wool. It was a black wool. They had this type of sheep that they raised. It was a black sheep. And they would build these, uh, or, or make these, uh, these amazing gowns. Uh, you know, people, everybody back then wore dresses, even guys. And, uh, and, and, and they, had, they were made out of this like really nice, fine, expensive wool, black wool made from these black sheep. And uh, it was kind of like the diesel jeans of the day. And uh, that was kind of what they were known for. And they would export this all around. Last thing is this, and we'll kind of move on, is uh, they were also known for kind of a, being like a medical type of a community. Uh, it was sort of like a college town, but they specialized in certain types of uh, medicines, in particular ophthalmology, meaning they studied the eye. And one of the main things that they studied that actually came out of this particular region, as Strabo tells us, was this type of powder. It was like a salve. And there was a rock in the region of Laodicea, in the region of Phrygia, which is Laodicea, part of that, uh, where they would take this rock full of, you know, again, like all these minerals and calcium deposits, and they would crush it. And they would put different types of liquid and stuff like that, and everybody kind of had their own little mixture. And they would use sort of this solve and put it on people's eyes, and it was believed to have some sort of medicinal value. And as a result of that, they sold and sort of exported this eye solve worldwide. So that's what we know about the city of Laodicea. Again, all of these things, you're like, great history lesson. Uh, All of these things will actually play into the story. Okay, so let's take a look at, again, uh, the very first verse that we read. Verse 14, it says this. And to the angel of the church of Laodicea, write the words of the amen, the faithful, the true witness, in the beginning of God's creation. Jesus starts out by basically labeling himself or giving himself certain titles. Uh, The titles that Jesus uh, lays out for himself is the amen. The word amen just simply means, and so be it, uh, let it be. Uh, Probably a reference to Jesus being uh, representative of the Father. Just so be it. He is who claims he is. He's the true. The word amen can also be kind of identified as true. It's true. Uh, In the book of John, for example, uh, if you ever read kind of like in the old King James language, or you come across certain verses where Jesus says stuff like this, verily, verily. And you're like, what's verily, verily? A verily, verily just means truly, truly. It's kind of like Jesus saying, amen, amen. And what Jesus is basically saying is that what I'm telling you is absolute truth. It, it is what it is. And, and I'm, I'm telling you the truth. And then he gives this other description of himself He says uh, the words of the amen and the faithful. The word faithful is the Greek word pistos. Uh, We're told that we're saved by faith, uh, by grace through faith, that this word faith, pistos, is trust or uh, belief. Jesus says, I am the faithful one. Um, uh, Then he says the true witness, uh, probably a reference to the fact that Jesus faithfully represents or represents the Father. In other words, anything that you want to try to figure out what God's like, that God chooses to reveal of himself, can be seen through his faithful representative, i.e. Jesus. That's what he's saying. I'm the faithful and true witness. And he says, I'm the beginning of God's creation. 
Now, this verse has caused a lot of trouble for a lot of different people. In particular, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses have taken this verse uh, and wrongly assumed that this actually teaches that Jesus was created. Jesus was created, because after all, he says, I am the first, firstborn of all creation. Uh, the word firstborn literally means, or it's a Greek word, arche. We get the word like architect from, or um, archbishop, or something like, something that's of first order, first importance. And so what Jesus is saying I'm of first importance of all of God's creation. So here's the question. Is Jesus talking about everything that's created, everything that we see, everything that's tangible, and everything even that's not seen? Is is Jesus saying, I was the first one in an order of a succession of millions of items that would be created? Is he saying, I'm the first one ever created out of all of that, or is he saying something else? I want to try to understand this real fast. So if you guys want to turn there real quick, we can take a look at Colossians chapter 1. So just take a second. It's kind of like a side note. It's a freebie. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 says this. Paul writing this, he kind of uses the exact same language that Jesus uses here. So what's important to know about that is this was a phrase that was kind of circulating throughout the early church. Therefore, I think it's important for us to kind of know what the phrase is so that we can be kind of in sync with it. So here's what Paul says, uh, first, or, uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image, Jesus is, of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So if you just stop right there, you would imagine, you know, again, there he uses the phrase firstborn of all creation. He is the firstborn of all created order. But then he goes on in verse 18, and he kind of gives us a little bit more of a clue as to what he means with regard to this created order. Verse 18 says this, uh, he is the head of the body of the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So this is really important what Paul's trying to say, that Jesus, yes, he is the first order of creation, but not original creation, but new creation. What Jesus is basically saying I am the firstborn, not of all creation, meaning I wasn't created, but I'm the first of a new order, of new creation. This is really important, because some of us kind of have this vague, ambiguous idea, we're just like, you know, what's heaven going to be like? What's it going to be in the eternal state when we die, when our bodies kind of stop working? What's it going to be like? You know, because a lot of times, this is where a lot of weird theology creeps in, a lot of weird medieval concepts, people think that, you know, heaven's going to be like really chubby cherubs hanging out in clouds, playing harps and singing horrible. And, and we think this is what heaven's like. Bottom line is, that's not heaven. I think that's hell. And, and the reality is we have these false ideas as to what heaven will be like and what the eternal state will be like. And what Jesus is trying to say, I'm the firstborn of a brand new created order. Not all creation, but new creation. I'm the firstborn. I'm the first of all of what this will look like. So I'll give you an example, just a quick little snapshot. Jesus dies, he rises again from the dead, and one of the very first things he does is he goes and he hangs out with his friends, stops at the grocery store, and they have a barbecue. They sit down at the beach and they eat food. I love this, because here's Jesus in his resurrected body, the firstborn of the dead. In other words, new creation will, praise God, involve lots of good food. All right, that's what I think he's saying, because Paul picks up on this idea later, and he says, the, the, one day, one day, we will be like what Jesus was when he rose again from the dead. That's what our body will be like. We will live on a physical earth, in physical bodies, not these physical bodies, but renewed physical bodies, bodies that are renewed in an image, in a likeness that is just like the body that Jesus had when he rose again from the dead. So when Paul and Jesus uses this phrase, he's the firstborn, he's not talking about firstborn of general creation, but firstborn of new creation. Does that make sense? All right. So as he goes on, Jesus wants to establish that. I think the point that he's trying to make here is that he knows what he's talking about. He knows what he's talking about. He's not just some guy coming out on the scene. He's sort of like a you know, junior varsity. He doesn't really know what he's doing like yet. He's just trying to find his place. So he's just saying stuff. Jesus is saying, I know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm the everlasting God. I'm the firstborn of this new created order. I know what I'm talking about. And the reality is, is you guys aren't walking in sync with this. You aren't walking in line of what the new created order is going to be like. 
And I think that's quite frankly why Jesus is a little bit bummed with this church. Now we're going to get into the good stuff. Some of you guys come to church, you're like, I just need a good message to encourage me. Unfortunately, this message today and the things that Jesus has to say to this church, it's not really good. I think it might end good, but the bottom line is this, is I think we have to feel the full force of the rebuke that Jesus is trying to convey. Because the bottom line is this, if all we do is we look at the Bible as sort of this guidebook to make me feel better about myself, then I think we're just as deceived as the lay to seeing people were. We just kind of find ourselves using religion as a means to sort of help us rather than viewing it as we are servants of the everlasting God. God steps into our world and God says, I'm almighty, all-powerful, I created you, love me, serve me, come into relationship with me. And that's the type of order that God wants to sort of reestablish here, that somehow got a little bit, quite frankly, just jacked up. It's out of order, it's out of sync, it's not correct. God wants to restore that, and that's what Jesus is basically trying to convey. So verse 15, he says this, I know your works. Now a couple times throughout other letters, Jesus will start and say, I know your works. Then he'll say something like, you guys are doing a great job. You guys are awesome. You're working hard, loving each other, serving each other, taking care of the poor. You guys are doing a great job. You're making an impact upon your city. Some of you are working hard. You're getting beat down for it. But here's what he says to these guys. He says, I know your works. You guys aren't either hot. You're not cold. I would that you were either hot or cold. But so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. So what Jesus says here, he says, I know your works. You guys aren't hot, you're not cold. So I want you to pause here for a second. Traditionally, most of us have been taught, I've heard it taught this way before, that really the idea of hot and cold is that you're either hot, meaning you're zealous, excited, and cold, meaning you're just just kind of a burnout. You're not that happy, you don't love God, your heart's cold, you're not excited about God or anything. And we kind of take the idea of hot and cold, and quite frankly, what we're doing is we're overlaying our cultural understanding of hot and cold as being euphemisms, right, for hot meaning good, happy, excited, affectionate, zealous, passionate, and cold meaning you don't really want to hang out with that person, they're icy cold, you know, they give me a cold stare, they give me a cold look. We take it as kind of a bad concept, and we sort of superimpose it over the text. And I think what we do is we fail to take into consideration how these guys would have read the letter. Now again, remember, this was a, a city that was within two other cities, they were right closely connected with each other. They always traded with each other. They passed letters amongst themselves with each other. They were close, close knit, closely connected, tight type of group of people. Hierapolis had these unbelievable uh, white cliffs that kind of produced these amazing hot springs. Colossae produced this cold, good, refreshing water. So people in Laodicea, when they hear hot, they think Hierapolis. They think I got to hurt back. I want to go sit in the hot bath. They think, you know, sore feet. I want to go soak my feet. They think even skin diseases. I want to go get mudded up and go sit in the nice, warm, hot mineral bath and just soak. Or they would think cold, cold Colossi water, cold, refreshing mountain spring, good to drink, just great type of water. So I think personally, in the context here, hot is good. Cold is good. Both are good. Both serve purposes. Both are beneficial. Both aid. Both help. Both support life. Both bring blessing to people. But the problem is, Jesus says, you guys aren't hot, like Hierapolis, nor are you cold, like the nice refreshing waters of Colossae. You guys are lukewarm, meaning you guys are just like the water that you guys are used to drinking in your own city. It's just, it's distasteful. It doesn't bring any refreshment. Nobody walks away from drinking Laodicean water and thinks, this is great. Now again, remember, water was central. It was essential to the life of any culture, any civilization in the ancient world. And they totally were dependent upon water. Everything they did surrounded or was, was really involved in some sort of water. And so for them living in Laodicea, drinking this nasty water, they were all familiar with what it meant to either A, want to spew it out of your mouth, or B, actually spew it out of your mouth. And so here's what Jesus is saying. You guys aren't hot. You're not cold. You're not helpful. You're not refreshing. You're not a benefit. You're not a blessing to anybody. You're just like the water in your own city. It's distasteful. 
It doesn't satisfy anybody. It frustrates everybody, especially if you're somebody that's really desperately thirsty and you take a big gulp of laodicean water. You feel like throwing up. And Jesus is just like, that's how I feel about you guys. Does that bother you? I mean, does it bother you to think that Jesus looks at some churches and says, you're a great church. I really love what you're doing. But then other churches, Jesus is like, I really don't like what you're doing. I'd rather throw up. That's what you make me feel like. I don't like the way that you're acting. I don't like the way that you're treating each other. You're not a benefit to anybody. You're not passionate about me. You're not passionate about anybody. All you're passionate about is yourself. You look at yourself in the mirror and you think everything's great. Jesus is like, you guys actually just make me sick. I don't like what I see when I look at you guys. That's what he's saying. Those are harsh words. But I want you to see here in a second that Jesus actually says these words out of a real deep sense of love. They're hard for us to hear because to be really quite frank with you, nobody likes to be criticized. Nobody does. Nobody sits here and wakes up and says, you know, I really want somebody just to tell me what it's like. Tell me what I'm really like. Just to look me in the eyes and just say, you stink. I really hate you. The way that you look at me, the way that you act, the way that you just kind of portray yourself, everything about you, I just don't like. I mean, nobody likes to hear that. And the reality is Jesus just hits them straight because he loves them. He wants them to change. He wants them to be transformed. So basically what he goes on to say in verse 17, he says, for you might say, for though you say I'm rich, I have prospered, I have need of nothing, you've not realized that in reality you are rich, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So what you have to understand is these people actually had an opinion about themselves. This to me is an irony, all right? I mean, on one hand, they looked at themselves and they thought, we're rich. You know, we've got goods. We've got influence. We've got impact. We've got, you know, maybe a couple governors that go to our church. And, you know, we're doing really good. We've got a massive building, massive building plan. Everything's great. Everybody has big houses. Pastor's got a jet. He flies around a church. Everything's wonderful. This is a great place. You know, but then basically Jesus looks at him and he says, what you think about yourself is not the reality. You guys are looking into one of those funky carnival mirrors. And, and in reality, you're actually looking at it through something that's actually causing you to think you look really good. But in reality, you're just pretty messed up. Things aren't what they appear. And even though you think you're rich, even though you think that you have a lot, everything's going great, Jesus basically says the reality is, in an ironic sense, you're actually wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And that's what Jesus is trying to convey to this group of people, is that they had sort of this ironic twist that was going on, that Jesus wanted them to really see what they really were like. And the bottom line is that oftentimes when we look at ourselves, I think sometimes we don't have clear, accurate views of what we are. I think the bottom line, this is part of the downfall of man. We actually want to think that we're somebody other than what we truly are. This is part of the self-deception that we're all a part of. We always look at ourselves. We always think, I mean, honestly, I don't watch the whole season, but one of my favorite parts is like the first three weeks of American Idol. You know what I'm talking about? You get these people on there and they're just like, I know I'm a rock star. And they get up there and sing, and you're like, this is horrible. Are, are these people deceived? I mean, you know what I'm talking about? And, and, and yet in their mind, they walk off the stage, like cussing Paul Abdul out. They're really upset. They're like, I can't believe it. They don't see how good I really am. And the reality is, they do see how horrible you are. And you're not good. And, and, and you don't deserve to be on stage. You don't have a voice. And the point that I think that oftentimes comes into full view is that we always have this tendency to deceive ourselves. Well, we think that we are a little bit better than what we really are. And Jesus' whole point to this church in this ironic twist is that you're really not who you think you are. You're actually poor, you're naked, you're blind, and you're not who you think you are. And they can kind of look at themselves, and even though they might kind of understand that even though they might be a church that they do things sometimes and they're part of this group of people that, you know, that think that they're better than what they really are, we're all like that. And the bottom line is, is that we can be people that we look at ourselves, we're like, you know, I go to church sometimes, I help out sometimes, I read my 
Bible, sometimes I pray, sometimes I give money, sometimes I bring my Bible to church even, sometimes, you know, and, and we have sort of this very inconsistent record that we, at the end of the day, someone were to ask us, how are you doing? We're like, great. I, I think I'm really doing good. And what's really going on here is this seems to be a theme that sort of flows through the rest of the Bible, in particular the New Testament and Jesus' ministry. Remember the people that Jesus had the most difficulty with? These were the ones that were of the religious system. We oftentimes look at them, we kind of write them off as the bad guys. We're like, they're the Pharisees, they're the scribes, they're the religious ones that think they're all great. The bottom line is, is that every single one of us have a little bit of Phariseeism in us, all of us. I mean, we oftentimes don't see that because, you know, we look at outward actions or externals, and we just think, we're not a Pharisee. But the bottom line is this, is we do have this perpetual tendency to actually think that we're better than we really are. And then Jesus comes and says, you're really not as great as you think you are. And Jesus then counsels them. He says in verse 18, I counsel you that you should buy gold from me refined in the fire so that you might be rich, and white garments so that you might clothe yourself and the shame of your wickedness or your nakedness so that may not be seen and solved to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Notice what Jesus says. He basically touches on the three main elements that kind of defined Laodicea as a city itself. He talks about, buy for me gold. We find in the fire. This is like uh, purified gold, expensive gold. Remember, they were banking capital. Then he goes on and says, I also counsel you to buy for me white garments, white clothing that symbolizes purity. Remember, they made this black wool. So it's kind of like this inversion of the metaphor. He says, don't, don't, don't buy the black, buy the white. It's the new black. And dress up in what I offer you. And then he goes on and says, also buy for me this eye salve. Because you guys think you see, but in reality you don't see. You're actually blind. But I have the means of getting you back right into a place where you can actually see things again. But all of this is connected to this little phrase where Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me. This is a second irony within the story. If the first irony is these people think themselves to be something, and they're really something else, the second irony is Jesus says, you guys are poor, and you got no money, but I want you to buy for me gold. It's kind of an irony. It's like, what, why would Jesus say that? Why would he use that picture? I think what Jesus is doing is he's hearkening back to an Old Testament passage out of Isaiah. I want to read this to you. It's actually a great passage. It says this in Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and to eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I may make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David." So basically, Isaiah's saying, or God's saying through Isaiah, he's saying, listen, come to me and buy bread that actually satisfies. The, the implication is this, is that you guys spend your whole life to earn the money to buy bread that really doesn't satisfy. To buy things that really don't answer the core of who you are. The core questions that all of us are searching for. Because the reality is, is that one of the reasons why we are oftentimes self-deceived it's because we have sort of this echo of what rightness is like. But it's beyond our grasp to get it. We all know that. So here's what we do. Based upon our expertise, our knowledge, our resources, we basically concoct our own forms of fig leaves to try to make things better. We try to make things right. And this is basically at the heart of who we are, what religion's all about. Religion is our attempt to make things right with God so that one day, if God ever would look at us and say, why should I take you? We can look at God and say, well, because I read my Bible every day, because I go to a good church, or because, you know, whatever. I mean, we, we can fill in the blank with whatever it is that we want. But the bottom line is that these are all attempts in which we try to get back to a place of rightness and to sort of ease our own issues within our own soul. And what Jesus is basically saying, what you guys are actually looking for is home. That's what you really want. You want home. 
I'm home. Home is not your wealth. Home is not what you have. Home is not your possessions. Home is not what you can buy with your money. Home is not the type of jeans that you wear. It's not the type of car you drive. It's the type of business you have. The type of degree that you get. Home is me. Home isn't a relationship with me. And you guys, for some reason, somehow, you become just like the latest in culture around you. Rather than being an influence on the latest in culture, you've let the latest in culture influence you. And you've become just like them. You've gained this mentality of, I have. What do I need your help for? Remember, they were going around saying, after this great earthquake, we don't need Rome's help. This is, in essence, what the church itself in Laodicea was saying. We don't need Jesus. We're doing a great job without him. Church is going great, services are packed, people are coming, we got money, we can keep the pastor's you know, salary huge, we can make sure that he's always got his television program, everything's wonderful. And the bottom line is at the end of the day, Jesus is like, you don't have home. You, you, you've somehow voted me out the door, and you've just been happy that way. But Jesus' whole point is you guys are poor, miserable, blind, and naked, and you just don't see it. So I counsel you to come to me. And how do you buy something that you don't have any money to buy? See, that's sort of the craziness within this passage here. The irony there. How do you do that? If Jesus is echoing this Isaiah passage, then I think what Jesus is basically saying is this. You don't have the money to buy it. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You just got to receive it because it's a gift from God to you. You see that? That's what God wants for us to understand. Man, I'll tell you, if some of us would just come to grips with that and understand that we, like Jesus, or like what Paul says, we are accepted in Jesus. God accepts us. God brings us home in Jesus. I think we would live our lives differently. I would think we would spend our money on things differently. We would spend our time on other matters differently than constantly trying to carve out for ourselves some sort of image that's just a facade, just like the Laodicean church did. And Jesus says, it's just a facade. It's just a storefront. It's just empty. And what you really need is me. Some of you guys need to hear that. Some of you need to know that. Some of you need to just repent from your other pursuits and just trust in what Christ offers freely. That's what he's basically saying. As he moves on, he says this, kind of in wrapping it up, in verse 19. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. Be zealous and repent. What I love about this verse is, quite frankly, this is your hope. This is my hope. This is not about us trying to work our way back to God and make things right and sing louder and read our Bibles a little bit more and make sure that we actually stay diligent reading through the Bible yearly this time and not just, you know, screw off over the next, you know, three weeks and just forget about it. This is about us actually just stopping our efforts and trusting what God has already done in his work through Jesus on the cross. Does that make sense? It means just us stopping trying to earn God's favor and accept the fact that in Christ, Jesus has all the favor of God. We just need to trust him and love him. That's what he's saying. That's why he points out, he says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. You see, you mean to tell me that this church that's pretty messed up, that's pretty much voted Jesus out the door, Jesus is actually coming to them saying, I love you? Yes. It's exactly what's happening. It's exactly what's taking place. Jesus loves this unlovable church. This is hope. This is our hope. This is our only hope. That God gives us unmerited favor. That means grace. God shows grace to us even though we don't deserve it. Even though we're least deserving. He just gives it to us because of his love. If you're here, you're Christian, you're a believer... You're messing up. You're like the Laodicean in church. And you're looking at your life, and you're just like, I'm pretty messing up right now in my life. It's not an issue about you trying to feel bad or you make, feeling bad about yourself. That's not what this is about. This is about you understanding the deep, deep love of God that is out to grab a hold of you and not leave you that way, but rather to change you, to transform you, so that now you could actually be more reflective of 
Jesus who is reflective of the Father, that you would look like the Father, act like the Father, and be a blessing to the world around you, just like the Father did in sending his son as a missionary. To be quite frank, this is the church that just lost its mission. This is a church that just kind of somehow forgot what we're here for. I mean, I, I would imagine the first believers that came to Laodicea, they settled in, they were all passionate, they loved Jesus, they gathered together, they prayed, worshiped Jesus, loved singing songs, loved hearing God's word taught. I'm sure when they got letters from Paul the Apostle, they were like stoked, is there any more coming? They were all into it. They loved Jesus. But somewhere along the line, maybe they just kind of settled in, everything just sort of kind of got, you know, normal for them. They kind of shifted it into neutral, and sooner or later, they just began to realize, you know what? Man, whenever Jesus shows up in our congregation and people talk about Jesus, we get a little bit convicted. We don't like feeling convicted. So they voted, and they all voted together. It's kind of a congregational vote, and they just decided we don't want Jesus in the church anymore. So where's Jesus in the church? So Jesus goes on to say, and he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He says, If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him, and I will eat with him, and he with me. I was talking through with this with my kids last night. We were talking about this, and I asked him, I says, in the letter, where is Jesus in the church? Like, wh- where's he at? And like, he's outside. I said, yeah. Is that a good place for G- Jesus to be? No, that's a horrible place for Jesus to be. FYI, if Jesus is on the outside of your life, it's a really bad place for him to be. All right? Th- this is one of those verses that evangelists love to use as kind of a horrible proof text, pretext, and they just preach and say, this is a great evangelistic message for anybody who's not a Christian, Jesus is knocking at your door, your heart. This is not being spoken to non-believers telling them to repent. This is a message that Jesus says specifically to a church, to believers, people that claim to know him, but for somewhere along in their life, they've kind of gotten off track, they've gotten off mission, gotten off course, and have forsaken the very God who's redeemed them. And he's just like, you guys voted me out. I'd love to come back in and hang out with you guys, have dinner and be part of the worship service and actually be part of the communion service and just do life with you guys. Jesus knocking on the door. He's like, I want to come back in. Is anybody there going to let me come in? And that's the issue. That somewhere along the line, they just kind of forsaken mission, gotten off track, and Jesus said, I really want back into my church. I want back into your life. I think the bottom line is this. We have to be willing to examine ourselves, to honestly, truly look at ourselves and ask, where are we at with God? Where are we at with God? What are we like? I mean, what are we like when it comes to Jesus? When we hear messages, when we hear what Jesus says, we read God's word, do we actually take it to heart? Does it impact us? Does it affect us? Do we truly have a passion, a true longing, true desire to live in humility, to know Christ, to be conformed to his image? I'm not saying try to become more religious. It's, in fact, quite to the opposite of what I'm trying to say. We don't want to become stuffy, religious, arrogant, self-satisfied people that resemble more of a branch or breed of Pharisees than loving Jesus. We want to look like Jesus. But what I'm really trying to say is, is there a drive in our hearts? Is there a passion in our hearts that just says at the core of our being, that's what we want. We want to be like him. We want to love him. We want to serve him. Or somewhere along the line, have we just kind of grown complacent? Have we become non-effective? Do we hear about needs and just, we just don't even have any impact? There's no affection in our heart. When we hear about people that are hurting, do we just kind of turn the channel we hear about needs that even raise up in the church or needs that even take place in our community. Do we even care? Do we even care? That's the point that I think Jesus is trying to say is that you're neither hot, you're not cold. You guys are just like this nauseating, horrible type of water that people drink at Laodicea and they want to just throw up and I want to throw up with them. Guys, at the end of the day is this. Jesus loves his church. I hope that's what you sense. He loves this church. He loves Calvary Slow. He loves you guys. I love you guys. I'm stoked to be able to be here. To be really honest with you, I've been amazed to see what God's done in this church. We've seen God do amazing things. Next week, students get back. There'll be hundreds of more people in this building. You think it's hot right now? You're sweating right now? Wait till next week happens, all right? It's just gonna be chaotic. But you know what? We have this amazing opportunity to love people, to serve people, not to get nauseated with people, not to get frustrated people, but to love people. 
beginning here, beginning here. See, one of the problems is we live in this culture that's sort of this service-oriented culture, right? You walk into McD's, God forbid, but you walk into McD's and, and you're like, there's no toilet paper or, you know, there's no more, you know, ketchup. Who's going to get the ketchup, right? This is horrible and we get upset with people because they're not doing their job. And what happens is that transforms the way that we think even about the church. We like walk in and we're like, we're like little kings, we want to be served. And the bottom line is, is our king doesn't walk in like a king saying, I want to be served. Our king walks in and says, I'm a servant to, here to wash your feet. Our king walks in and says, I'm your servant to serve you. Yes, I made the universe. Yes, you know, black holes, simple thing for me. It's easy as making pudding, all right? I know how to do all this stuff. I'm king. But he comes in as a servant to serve, and he says, I do this set an example so that you do the same. Hot, water, good. Refreshing. Helps sore backs. Cold water, good. Refreshing. Hot days, it's great. Lukewarm, horrible. Do you know that Jesus wants his church to be a blessing? He wants his church to be a blessing. He wants this church to be a blessing to each other, to the world around us, to be a blessing to San Luis, to be a blessing to AG, to be a blessing to Atascadero, Santa Maria, the Pomo, all the areas that are represented in this building. Yes, I suppose even Santa Margarita. Yes, he even loves that place. And the point I'm trying to make is this. He loves people. Jesus loves people because he represents the Father. But Jesus sends us out in the world so that we'd be a blessing. I want to finish, read one little passage here to you guys. Matthew 25 says this. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, he says, with all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered together in his presence. And he says, and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from, his goats, from the goats. And he will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats on his left hand. And then the king will say to those on the right, come, you who are blessed of my father, or who are, my my father's happy with you guys. He says, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the creation of the world. For I was hungry, you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, you invited me into your home. I was naked, you guys gave me some clothes. I was sick, you guys cared for me. I was in prison, you came and visited me. Then this righteous group of people will reply and they'll say this word to Jesus. They'll say, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or feed you or thirsty, gave you something to drink? Or a stranger, show you hospitality, or naked, give you clothing? Or when did we ever see you sick or in prison and come visit and hang out with you? Jesus then says this. The king will then say, I tell you the truth, when you did this to the least of these my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. This is what Jesus is saying. When you just randomly walked up that dude in prison and just hung out with him, spent time with him, you're doing that to me. When you gave some homeless guy on the street some food, when you invited somebody that was hurting in your house to hang out, to have a bed to sleep in, to spend some time with them. When you saw somebody hungry or thirsty and you fed them, you took care of them. Jesus is saying, it's like doing it to me. These are my image bearers. And then he goes on to say, there's this other group of people, basically says the exact same thing. I'm really upset with you guys and you guys are gonna be cast away. Here's how the word that he uses. In fact, it's a very powerful term. In verse 46, he says this, and there will be many that will go away into eternal punishment and the righteous go into eternal fire and they are righteous go into eternal life. But his point is that they're gonna go to this place that was not actually made for men, but it was made for the devil and his angels. And he says, this, this group of people will be a group of people that I will say, I was hungry, you never fed me. I was thirsty, you never took care of me. I was impoverished, you never helped me out. And they're going to say, well, when did we see you hungry, thirsty, impoverished, yada, yada, yada. He's going to say, when you saw the least of these in this world, you did nothing. What Jesus, I think, is actually saying in this verse, as well as other passages, for example, the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus uses this metaphor, culturally known to those around the Sea of Galilee, he says, you guys are the salt of the earth. Everybody knew what salt was. Salt was a preservative. Salt uh, stopped uh, decay and corruption. So they understood salt was a good thing. Jesus also said, you guys are like a light. 
Light's really good. I would imagine maybe even Jesus could have said that uh, on several occasions, probably in a very dark night. And he looks up on a hill and he's maybe he sees a big city up there. And he's like, you guys are like a city set up upon a hill. And those that are in darkness, that don't know where to go, they're sort of lost in the thick of darkness. All they need to do is look at this city and realize, go straight ahead. That's home. Home is up there. Jesus says, you guys are like light. You guys are to be like salt. And the metaphor that he uses to Laodicea, he goes, you guys aren't hot, meaning refreshing and helpful, nor are you cold. You guys are just lukewarm. And I think the point that Jesus is trying to make is somewhere along the line, the church has lost its mission. They stopped being a blessing to the culture, to the church, to the people around them. And all they began to do is care about themselves. They just stopped caring about other people. Do you care? I mean, do you guys care? I hope that we're a church that cares. We've seen God do amazing things in this church. And to be quite frank, the reason why is because we've had a lot of amazing caring people, people who actually care, people who love other people, people who are willing to say, I'll serve behind the scenes, I don't really care, it's no big deal, I just want to love people, I want to give them my life. Because oftentimes what happens, we end up thinking, we're like, well, maybe there's somebody else who's going to take care of it, maybe there's somebody else who's going to pay the bills, maybe there's somebody else who's going to evangelize the lost, maybe there's somebody else who's going to pray in the lost, maybe there's somebody else who's going to teach Bible studies to the little kids, maybe there's somebody else who's going to take care of the junior high students and make sure that they don't go the way of the rest of every youth culture in this nation today, and yet walk towards Christ, maybe there's somebody else who's going to do it. I want to tell you guys, there is no somebody else, it's you. It's us as a body working together for the glory of God, serving because God is a blesser. God loves to bless, and all of God's blessings come through Jesus. Jesus entrusts us with his blessings, and he says, go out into the world and be a blessing. Lead them to me. And Jesus finishes with this amazing promise in verse 21. He says, he who conquers... I will grant him to sit on my throne as I also conquered and I sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear it, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know what Jesus is saying right here? When everybody thinks about throne back in that day, they immediately understand throne is power and authority and significance and upper class and honor and respect. They all knew that. And Jesus is saying this. If you overcome, if you overcome, the throne where I sit will be your new home. That'll be your home. You're all looking for home. You're all looking for an identity. You're trying to carve it out in some other way, in your riches, in your wealth, in industry, business, in education, in looks, in possessions. Jesus' real home is with my father on his throne, if you overcome, I promise you, I promise you, you will be there with my Father on the throne with me. Does that mean anything to you? I hope it does. I hope that absolutely challenges you to just say, I wanna fight, I wanna keep going, I wanna love Jesus with all my heart, I wanna serve him. I don't wanna stop, I don't want us to come to this world, I don't want to allow this culture to infect me and to destroy me. I want to have a preserving impact upon this culture, even if it means, just like Jesus, it gets to a point where they try to stomp us out, just like they did to Jesus. But Jesus says, I conquered. They killed me, but I overcame. I rose again. And Jesus says, you too will rise again. And you'll sit on the same throne with my father. Isn't that an amazing promise? It's because of his love. He loves those whom he chastens. He wants us to be a church that reflects him, that reflects the Father. We're gonna respond. We're gonna sing worship to Jesus. We're gonna sing songs to him. We're gonna have a time to be able to give our gifts, our tithes, our offerings to Jesus. If you're one of our guests, please keep your money. We just want you guys to, to know Jesus. If you're not a Christian, definitely keep your money. If this is your church, 
This is an opportunity for you to give joyfully and happily to the work that God's doing here. Give generously and joyfully because you love Jesus. Just like God was a generous giver, we get an opportunity to give generously. We're going to have an opportunity to partake of communion. If communion right in the back there and by the cross right there as we worship, please feel free to just go back at any time you like and take one of the the bread and dip it in the cup and just remember what Jesus did for you on the cross. If you're not a Christian, don't take the communion. There's a lot of things that we can do together as a group. We can sing songs together. We can listen to Bible studies. But if you're not a Christian, I encourage you, don't partake of the communion because communion symbolizes a relationship that you have with Jesus. If you don't have that relationship with Jesus, you know what the best thing to do is? Just receive the free gift that he gives. Receive it. It's a free gift. He gives the water that you can't afford. It's free. It's because he loves you. I'm going to pray. We'll worship. We'll give. We'll sing. We'll remember him in communion. And we'll dismiss you guys after we're done. Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for everything you've done for us. We now, God, want to worship you, give you our praise, sing songs of love to you.